everyone. Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today's Thursday, February 23rd. I'm Amid Borshal Dan, joined by our military correspondent, Emmanuel Fabian, and our diaspora affairs reporter, Judah Ari Gross. Hello to you both. Hi, good morning. Hey, Amanda. We have a lot to cover, including a renewed tit-for-tat exchange out of Gaza, a deadly IDF raid in Nablus, and abuse of egalitarian worshippers at the Western Wall. Wow. But first, a word from our sponsor. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org slash wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. And we're back. Manny, let's start with you and work backwards in a way. Uh, Israeli warplanes carried out bombing raids against the Hamas terror group in the Gaza Strip early this morning, which was hours after Palestinians fired six rockets into southern Israel, which was in an apparent revenge attack for a deadly Israeli incursion into Nablus. Okay, so let's begin with what happened in Nablus and work for it. So early on Wednesday morning, the elite Yamam police unit went undercover into the old city of Nablus uh, in an attempt to arrest a man by the name of Hussam uh, Islim. Uh, he is an alleged uh, senior member of the Lion's Den group, the armed group in Nablus that has claimed responsibility for numerous attacks uh, in the area. And the army says that he was the third member involved in a shooting attack last year uh, that killed a, an Israeli soldier, Ido Baruch. I think we mentioned on the podcast that two of the other members of the cell uh, were detained a week ago. So this was the third member. Um, and then during this uh, this attempt to arrest the man, he and two other members of Lions Den were kind of holed up in this hideout apartment. And when they called on the men to come out, um, they began opening fire. And the army and the police units responded as well. They launched these missiles at the building to try and flush them out. It's a technique known as pressure cooker. Uh, and ultimately, two of the suspects were killed inside the building. One was killed as he attempted to escape. And uh, additionally, in the area, because it was a, a daytime raid, it was around 10 in the morning, uh, a lot of uh, firefights and gun battles broke out and riots in the area. Uh, so the army was also fighting off other groups of uh, of Lion's Den in the area. And ultimately, uh, 11 11 Palestinians were killed and over 100 were wounded. Uh, one of the deadliest Israeli raids in recent years, definitely. And according to at least the, the Lion's Den group and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, at least six of the dead are uh, members of the groups. Uh, the other five, it is unclear as to what capacity they were participating in the uh, in the violence or if they were just people who were caught in the crossfire. 
Now, because of the extreme violence, this raid on the Lion's Den group has uh, captured headlines all over the world. Uh, the biggest newspapers are covering it. And do you think that it was a success for the IDF, seeing how many were wounded? When I spoke to a senior officer while this was happening, or kind of towards the end of it, he said that it, it did appear to be a success. But other officials in the army are concerned that so many Palestinians are being killed and so many, and so many hurt as well, uh, regardless uh, if we're talking about civilians or armed people, because in general, every time a Palestinian is killed, there's a funeral and then that causes more incitement and it kind of continues this, uh, this cycle. And right now, I believe we're at 60 or 61 Palestinians killed this year. That's basically one a day uh, at this rate. So by the end of the year, it'll be just be a, an insane number uh, of Palestinians killed. Even if we're only talking about, you know, gunmen or armed people who are involved in clashes, it's still a very high number. And that's only going to kind of continue this and, and people are going to, more people are going to join in the, the cycle of violence is how the army is, is viewing it. So in general, yes, they managed to, to stop or, or, or kill or arrest the person that they were aiming for, but also uh, we've seen a lot of other people killed on the way. Now, in addition to condemnations from the international press and leaders throughout the world, Hamas also responded. How did Hamas respond? So Hamas issued a kind of a veiled threat saying that they were watching the developments and their patience was running out. And then we saw several hours later, six rockets being launched at southern Israel. Uh, it's not clear if that was Hamas or was another group or they approved the other group to, to launch the rockets. We've seen in the past year uh, Islamic Jihad launching rockets when members are killed or arrested in the West Bank. Uh, numerous times, practically every time there's a, an Islamic Jihad member killed in the West Bank, they'll launch a rocket or two. This was six rockets, likely because of the high death toll in Nablus. The five of the rockets were intercepted by the Iron Dome, one landed in an open area, uh, not causing any damage or injuries. Um, so we have yet to see a claim of responsibility, but it's it's safe to assume that either Hamas or Islamic Jihad are behind it. Uh, and then in response, uh, the army targeted Hamas sites, because that's the Israeli policy, uh, because Hamas rules the Gaza Strip, so it attacks their sites regardless of who launched the the rockets. And the army said it hit a weapons manufacturing site and another military base, which was also used to store uh, naval weapons, uh, Hamas naval weapons. So those were the two uh, sites that were hit. I know it's impossible to predict, but do you see this as a brief flare-up or the beginning of something larger? I think we're already in a flare-up of some kind. I think th since a few weeks ago, there's something around 30-something rockets launched uh, at Israel, which is a very high number compared to what we saw, you know, in the months after the the last uh, war in Gaza uh, in August uh, last year, uh, that few-day flare-up. So we're seeing a lot more rocket attacks. We're seeing a lot more responses to Israeli raids in the West Bank. Um, we're seeing a lot more Palestinians killed in the West Bank. There's been an increase in attacks in, in Jerusalem we saw in recent weeks. 11 people were killed in, in a string of uh, different attacks, all in Jerusalem. So I think we're definitely in the, in the middle of some sort of uh, escalation of some kind. Whether or not this translates into a bigger kind of war is impossible to predict, and we'll, we'll just have to see. Okay, thank you for that, Manny. We'll go to a short break. I got married this Monday, in the middle of a war. You are not a soldier anymore, you are 50 years old. What is the matter with you? It's like a couple of kilometers from here. Like my friend has a 4x4, let's just go cut across the fields and go get him. 
Israel Story's Wartime Diaries. Voices that try to capture slivers of life right now. And he told me, take with you a sleeping bag and a tent <laughs> and just go. I texted him on, like after I was told that he was killed. From their eyes, I was a traitor. Everybody needs their like blankie, their teddy bear, something to make them feel safe. I'm just another grandfather looking after his grandchild while his son is off at war. These children of Hamas now will be the killer of my children. I desperately wanted to talk about sex during my eulogy for Ido. Everyone has to choose to be optimistic because we don't have room for pessimism. Check out Israel's story wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Judah, turning to you, let's begin with yet another report of clashes that broke out at the Western Wall yesterday morning as hardline Jews blocked and harassed and spat at supporters of the Women of the Wall and others while they tried to hold a combination protest slash prayer service at the holy site. So is there anything actually new here? Unfortunately, the um, clashes at the Western Wall have become one of Israel's most unfortunate and unpleasant uh, monthly traditions. It happens at the start of every Hebrew month, Rosh Chodesh, because this is a time that's normally uh, traditionally associated with women. So there's always this, uh, the women of the wall always hold uh, prayer services at the Kotel on those days. There's a bit of... uh, a difference of opinion on how much of this is prayer and how much of this is protest. Women of the Wall maintain that they're holding prayer services. The management of the Western Wall and ultra-Orthodox and Orthodox sort of hardliners see it as a provocation and a demonstration and not a prayer service. So there's a bit of uh, discrepancy there, each sort of looking at it in its own way. This month was not, you know, particularly violent, but it was sort of particularly contentious. Um, One of the things that we've seen uh, in the past little bit is uh, Labor MK and Reform Rabbi Gilad Kariv bringing a Torah scroll using his parliamentary immunity, which prevents him from being searched and stopped by um, law enforcement. So he sort of, against the rules of the site, brings in a, a private Torah scroll and hands it off to women to read at the Western Wall. And normally he he just sort of goes through. This time around, he was met by another MK from the United Torah Judaism Party, Yitzhak Pindrus. There was a little bit more sort of pushing and shoving. and then, But then sort of once it got to the Western Wall, then things calmed down a bit. But what was irregular this time was that there was sort of spillover into the egalitarian section of the Western Wall, which is sort of its own separate plaza. There's a separate entrance with a gate. There were a number of teenagers, members of the sort of youth branch of the far-right Noam party who tried to take over the egalitarian section and set up sort of these gender-segregating barriers and hold gender-segregated prayers. And they were removed relatively quickly by police. Um, They still sort of hung out in the area and harassed people going in and out, uh, but they were sort of taken out of the egalitarian section. Um, And to contrast that with an incident this summer where a group of extreme Orthodox teenagers came into the egalitarian section and disrupted a number of bar and bat mitzvahs that were being held, um, and the police just kind of stood by and let it happen. In the interim, 
partially because of uh, the reporting that the Times of Israel did um, on the issue. Um, some agreements were worked out between the Jewish agency, which manages the site, and the Israel police to deploy additional officers on uh, Rosh Chodesh um, and to be a little bit more aggressive in removing um, people who come in to demonstrate and disrupt prayers at the egalitarian section. And so we saw sort of the results of that yesterday. So essentially, it ended out better than it could have done. Now, that wasn't the only group of diaspora Jews that is unhappy with the way Israel is being run recently. And on Tuesday, you reported that the Jewish federations of North America sent a letter to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and opposition head Yair Lapid against the government's plan to legislate an override clause that would, as we know, allow a bare 61-seat Knesset majority to overrule Supreme Court decisions. Now, I feel like you and I have talked about this kind of thing before, but it's pretty unusual for this type of umbrella Jewish group to weigh in on internal Israeli politics. So did anyone from the Federation tell you specifically why now? So I'll just say it's not only the federations. The conservative movement has weighed in. World Mizrahi, which is sort of a religious Zionist, like much more conservative, lowercase c, conservative group has weighed in. The ADL, sort of a lot of these large international or American Jewish organizations are coming out either saying explicitly that they're against the judicial overhaul or just saying that there needs to be, you know, talks and more broad consensus because they're concerned about the division that's currently playing out in Israeli society over the judicial overhaul. And this is something that we're seeing for, for people like me who who cover the, the diaspora. This is a major change. I mean, this is, there was always, for decades, there has been this uh, policy of deference um, that American Jews specifically um, have had as it relates to Israel, where they sort of hold the line of, you know, we're here, you're there, your internal politics are your own. You know, they would weigh in when there was issues that dealt with sort of world Jewry. So relating to the Western Wall, relating to religious pluralism, things like that, where it's more directly sort of a Jewish issue. Whereas the override clause is sort of a very specific piece of legislation that's obviously um, a lot of the religious pluralism, a lot of the Kotel issues uh, end up playing out in the High Court of Justice. So there's sort of these indirect connections, but this is very much more sort of an internal Israeli issue. Um, and the response that I got was basically that there's uh, a lot of, they don't necessarily see it as a huge breakdown in the policy. I wholeheartedly disagree with them saying that this isn't a big deal. It is a big deal. Um, a lot of people who watch this field agree this is a, a big change um, in how diaspora groups normally interact with the Israeli government. Um, and they sort of see it as this is something that's like at the heart of uh, Israel and Israeli democracy. And as partners in um, you know building the Jewish state historically, they see it as something that they can weigh in on as well, um, that this goes beyond sort of specific domestic politics, but sort of a, to a wider issue of Israel democ Israeli democracy as a whole. Um, but this is something that's uh, really sort of out of the ordinary. Um, and my... Um, the, the thing that I'm thinking about and watching is sort of is, have we crossed a Rubicon? Is it now okay for um, diaspora Jewish organizations to weigh in more directly on sort of specific Israeli policies um, that don't directly deal with the Jewish world, but that deal with, you know, Israel internally? Um, 
And if so, what does that mean? How will they be treated by Israel? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of uh, big questions that go along with sort of changing the rules of the game to a certain extent. And it's uh, it's going to be fascinating to watch. Watch this spot. Listeners, I highly encourage you to listen to tomorrow's What Matters Now podcast recording that I did with former member of Knesset Ksenia Svetlova on a year to the Ukraine war, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In the meantime, Manny, Judah, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. Until next time. Shalom. Shalom.